I met my husband, George, in Mexico City, where I'm from, in 1979. When we decided to move to the U.S., we bought a car in Indiana when we were visiting his parents. They were like, uh, do you need air conditioning? And we were like, no, we don't need air conditioning. <laughs> so we drove down to Texas. That was our first stop. George had a friend here in Austin. I saw Barton Springs, which he loved. And it was like, yeah, this is it. This is the place. <laughs> Another thing that I really liked about Austin was the Benson Latin American Collection at UT. I was a transfer student studying anthropology. So I thought, yeah, this place is also a dream come true. I am Liliana Valenzuela, and this is I Love You So Much. Welcome to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, a show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if it's complicated. I'm your host, Tali Mosley. I'm Omar Gayaga. And I'm Addie Broyles, coming to you from the shores of Lady Bird Lake in the offices of the Austin American Statesman. In this week's episode, J.B. Sauceda, founder of Texas Humor. It's now a 45-person strong t-shirt company, but it started as a joke Twitter account Jay created at work. He talks to us about cultivating Texas pride while striving to be inclusive of all Texans. Craving a fresh summer read? The Austin 360 staff has compiled their can't-miss books of 2018, and Statesman Assistant Features Editor Emily Quigley is here to share it. In this week's Web Report, Statesman Online Editor Eric Webb tells us whatever happened to Celebration Station. And we're also saying goodbye to other Austin-area spots we've lost in a special in-memoriam segment. We'll end, as always, with our recommendations and a toast. But first, J.B. Saceda, who recently published a photo essay in Texas Monthly capturing the entire Texas state border from an airplane. The photographer-turned-t-shirt entrepreneur joins us now. Jay, welcome to I Love You So Much. Thanks for having me, guys. Okay, so this Twitter account, Texas Humor, when did it start and how did you get the inspiration to do it? So back in 2011, uh, I was a photographer for a long time and I was partnering a little graphic design studio on the east side called Public School. And a good friend of mine uh, was also, you know, he was a graphic designer and he'd gone to this conference up in the Midwest uh, called RoffleCon, R-O-F-L-Con. And it was about how people were sort of monetizing and using social media um, to create these content accounts and things like that. And he came back and he said, you know, there are all these people on Twitter. They're finally, they're using it instead of for personal purposes, they're actually turning them into, you know, a, a content account. So he kind of explained the, the concept to me. It, it started to wrap my head around it. And, you know, Twitter had been around for a while, but it wasn't really until about 2010, 2011, where it really hit kind of a mass relevance for people to start um, taking it on. And so there were, you know, thousands of people a day, millions of people signing up for this service and looking for accounts to follow that weren't just the things that their friends were posting. So anyway, he had built this little, um, you know, it, it was an audience of humor and just kind of general guy humor stuff. And he explained the model. I kind of parlayed that into a Texas version just for fun when I had a down, you know, uh, December one year uh, in the photography business and it just took off like a wildfire. I mean, it, it, it really, it was just jokes about 
the food and the people and I-35's construction lasting forever and just that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And uh, next thing we knew, I mean, we had 100,000 followers and it just took off from there. The Twitter account, I think, now is close to almost 900,000 followers. Something like almost that. a million. Yeah, getting close. Did you so. always think of yourself as a funny person? Uh, not really. Um, you know, I really like writing. I, I felt like from a writing perspective, I could yes! be funny. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I, I always feel like I'm not funny in person at all, but in writing, like that's where the humor came out. Yeah. So it's like some of us, you just have to go read us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then you translated it from a Twitter account to a t-shirt company. Right. Was so, that a big leap? Uh, yes and no. I mean, again, I'd, I had been in the, the advertising and creative field for a while. So I we had this joke that we always made about how uh, you know, Texans view the world through the lens of Texas, right? So you leave and you're in Chicago and you're like, ah, oh, God, I wish I had this or that, right? And that concept was something that we always played to and people would write in and ask questions or we would just joke about it when we were traveling. So I designed this shirt where the entire United States was, um, well, Texas was solid. And then the rest of the um, the continental United States spelled out the words ain't Texas. And we just posted it and said, jokingly, like, you know, there are only really two states in this country, Texas and ain't Texas. And that was really the, the impetus for us to take it and turn it into a store. Um, so we we printed a bunch of them and just couldn't keep up with it. And uh, River City Sportswear was actually a, a screen printing company. It was based here in Austin. Um, they reached out and said, hey, we can help you with this. And uh, we've been using them since we, we launched. And uh, they really helped us get off the ground. And then it just it took off from there. You realize you can turn more of these jokes yeah. into T-shirts. And so now you've got a company with how many employees? Well, so we've got about 45 employees. Um, and this started a Twitter account. That yeah. just blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, we have 45 employees. The, the vast majority of the people who work for us work on the fulfillment side. So we have our store. We sell our products to the people who follow our, our Instagram, Facebook, and, and Twitter accounts. But in addition to that, we also do order fulfillment for other companies that are in the e-commerce space. So the main takeaway is, folks, if you're bored at work, you can just start <laughs> yourself a, a novelty Twitter account, and yeah. you never know. Yeah, you just off. never know where it'll go. Yeah. So you are still a photographer. I see you have editorial work in various magazines. And in 2016, you embarked on this crazy project to fly over the border of Texas and photograph it, well, yeah. which is odd because you are afraid of heights and small spaces. Yes. But um, you were into that yeah so I, I don't shoot uh, actively like I don't take any commissions any longer mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I am fairly busy now with with running this business so the the cool thing though is that once I started the, the company um, we, we've always sort of looked at Texas humor as uh, like a cultural preservation organization like we we've seen it as this tool for promoting regionalism not like us against them despite the fact that I made a joke about ain't Texas like we we really just Talk ownership. About being, like ownership of Texas. Yeah. Like we all love Texas, right? So one of the beautiful things that happened at the beginning was that it, it that business kind of stabilized my income to the point where I was cool spending a, a chunk of money to go get my pilot's license. Mm-hmm. And I went and did it. I was still shooting occasionally. And um, one of the times that I was up shooting, Leslie Baldwin, who uh, is the photo editor at Texas Monthly, reached out and said, hey, did I see that you just got your pilot's license? And we just kind of riffed about it a little bit. And she sent me on a project, and then on the way back, we were talking a little bit about uh, more flying and photo essays, and I pitched her on this crazy idea to fly a plane around the perimeter of Texas and call it the flight around the world. And um, <laughs> so I planted that seed with her, I think it was like in 2014, and uh, her and TJ Tucker, um, formerly the art director there, 
kind of noodled on it for a while. And then they pulled the trigger in early 2015. And then I flew in July of, of that year. Um, it took about six days. What was your personal connection to that story? You know, just a massive fascination with the state of Texas and being really interested in somebody giving me a reason to be on a flying mission, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, I mean, I've wanted to fly since I was a kid and I grew up really close to a, a general aviation airport in LaPorte, Texas. And so it was a, it was a cool opportunity to get up and, and I talk about it now. Um, actually I have a book coming out and I was writing the intro for it. And I basically described how it's not like, it's not supposed to be a study on the border. Mm-hmm. It's really the, the, that project is essentially the intersection of two passions of uh, an adult man and and a boy, you know, and so I got to put those two things together that I liked doing or I wanted to do when I was a kid and did for a career as an adult. And it it was incredible. It was an amazing experience. Um, Was there anything that surprised you while you were shooting the border? You know, I I really wasn't sure what was going to be most fascinating. I'd spent a lot of time flying over the Gulf Coast in in, uh, the Houston area. But I'd never really, I mean, I honestly hadn't spent a lot of time in the panhandle period. And honestly, the most fascinating landscape from the air, I think, is the panhandle. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I enjoyed the leg between Dalhart, Texas, and El Paso more than any of the other legs. What and, do you um, see there? You know, a lot of the crop circles. So, you know, there, there's, there are the, there's that machinery that spins around and waters and, you know, um, and irrigates the crops. And uh, you see a lot of crazy textures. And then um, just the, the way the landscape, the Llano Estacado and Edwards Plateau kind of change um, was really pretty neat to see from that far north, too. It just people talk about the panhandle being flat and boring. And in reality, it's, it may feel that way on the ground. But from the air, it's pretty fascinating seeing how it changes. How far would you go in each leg? I would fly about three hours and some change every morning. And, and how then, many miles is that? Uh, it just varies. It's hard to say because... Um, I mean, you basically move about 140 knots um, an hour mm-hmm. um, when you're at like kind of max speed in that plane. But there were a lot of instances where I was looping around mm-hmm. um, and like kind of slowing down and shooting something down low and then mm-hmm. getting really high. Um, the plane was covered in GoPros. I was hanging out the window and shooting and, you know, just kind of bouncing around. So it wasn't really like a direct shot from one place to the next. Mm-hmm. So, right. yeah. You know, it strikes me, Jay, that both doing this project and running this company, you've gotten an insider's view on how multicultural Texas is. Mm -hmm. And um, obviously the border is in the news a lot right now. And you, though, have gotten an inside look at just how many languages are spoken in Texas. You've driven your car to more towns and more cities in Texas than maybe anybody has. Yeah. So what have you experienced when it comes to the diversity of cultures in Texas? What surprised you? So back in 2000, I think it was 2008, I got a call from the um, uh, the Dolph Briscoe Center for American History at UT. And a couple of historians um, asked me to come out. Uh, this one guy, uh, David Warren, um, and there's another gentleman named Lon Taylor. Both of them are historians. Lon used to work at the Smithsonian, and David Warren worked at Bayou Bend in Houston. And um, they used to work directly for Miss Ima Hogg. And they had worked on a pro- on a book called Texas Furniture, which um, a lot of old school Texans will know um, is, is kind of the Bible on antique Texas furniture that was made by the initial German and Czech settlers that, that came here back in the late in, 
kind of mid 1800s. And so anyway, they they wrote they did this first book in the 70s and um, she passed away right before it was published. Um, but they decided to do an updated version and they enlisted my help to go shoot all of the, the new furniture. And that meant that we were driving to some of the smallest little pockets and corners of the state. And so David, who um, is this older gentleman and, uh, you know, uh, was very scholarly and uh, great guy, um, soft spoken and, and um, you know, uh, you know, he. I, I just we we joked that we were like the odd couple because he was very much an academic, and I was this like twenty something year old with a big red truck. He drives a little black Mercedes Benz, and so we poked all over the state. And and one of my favorite moments was we went to Fredericksburg, and it was right. It was getting close to Christmas time, and we went to this one house. This gentleman had this wardrobe that we were going to photograph, and um, drove on a beautiful piece of property. I walked into the front door. And there were these three like actual German men at like maybe 10, 15 in the morning drinking this really dark beer. And I was really confused. Like, what is going on here? And, um, and they were just speaking German. It was so loud in there. I mean, they, they were super funny. And uh, anyway, what I found out was that the gentleman whose home we were at was a, uh, a second generation German. His parents had come over and uh, our second generation Texas German and his parents had come over and um, he his first language was German and he grew up in the World War II era and he talked he told us about the story about how he actually flunked first grade like twice because there was this anti-German rhetoric going on and his teachers decided we're not going to speak German anymore because we don't want people to think that we're on the side of Germany during this war and so you know, he he struggled to make it through school, and this is a really smart guy. I mean, he had a he was he had this beautiful collection of furniture. Um, he had uh, one of Ladybird's uh, Ladybird Johnson's hats that wow. he had purchased, and um, a and prominent he, figure, a prominent figure, yeah. and um, and he's a prominent person in in the Fredericksburg area as well. And uh, anyway, he had, he was hosting these Germans from I forget what what city but they had brought the big mechanical um, German pyramid or uh, windmill that you see outside of the uh, Settler Square in downtown Germany okay the one that they put it up every year for Christmas and it's automated and it just like spins they brought that as a gift from Germany to the city of Fredericksburg and they were in town visiting or whatever and so it was really pretty telling you know like it was interesting to hear this story that you know, what you kind of see going on now where people are criticizing people for speaking their native tongue actually happened before, mm-hmm. you know. And, right, and, right. Like learn English. Yeah, like learn right. English or get the heck out of here, you know. Right, and right, right. and so, uh, you know, we think about it as kind of a unique problem as, for today and, and Tejanos or Mexican. Spanish. Yeah. yeah and, and it's really like this has happened before, mm-hmm. you know. In fact, the this is a sort of um, it's related, but kind of an offshoot. I got a call about uh, a, a good while back. Um, my dad, a stock photography or stock photo that I'd shot of my dad was on the Colbert Report, and it was used in sort of a joke about this. And uh, Stephen Colbert sort of uh, jokingly attributed a, a fairly uh, bigoted statement to Mitch McConnell, which Mitch McConnell did not actually say. Um, but it was kind of commenting on people's uh, skin and their ability to assimilate into American culture. And he and it was your dad. Well, he was the the photo he pulled up was he he attributed this comment to Mitch McConnell and everybody like gasped in the the audience, and then he said, "Oh, actually, sorry, sorry, that wasn't Mitch McConnell. That was actually Ben Franklin, and he wasn't talking about Mexicans." And it showed a photo of my father. My dad's Mexican. I'm Mexican, and um, and so it showed a photo of my dad. And then he said, "You know, actually, Ben Franklin was talking about German people." 
And so this statement, Ben Franklin, an Englishman, made a comment about the German people's skin mm. back when the country was founded. Right. You know, and, and so these themes have been repeating themselves every right. handful of years, you know. Right. And so anyway, it just, I, I've seen it. I got to hear these stories firsthand. It's not BS. It doesn't just happen to Mexicans. You know, like right yeah. now, this is who everyone's talking about. But, mm-hmm. you know, I've talked to people with, and I've seen people with my own eyes that have gone through this in different ways. And it's, it, it this is not a unique problem. This is, this yeah. happens every so often. It's so know? interesting to me that all this kind of started from this Twitter account, which is meant to celebrate the us of mm-hmm. Texas. Uh, and that, you know, now that how you run your company, you have 45 employees who feel really invested in, in your business. And I just kind of wanted to ask some parting thoughts that you might have. You're a multi-hyphenate, lots of, <laughs> I don't know if you're a millennial either, but lots of borderline millennial yeah. people uh, also do lots of different things. Just what advice do you have to other young business owners or people who maybe want to start businesses? Maybe they have small shops that they run now. What advice would you give them to just think a little bit bigger as they're running their organizations. I know you've had some really important mentors in your life who have influenced you and how you run your company. Yeah. I just want to hear a few of your thoughts on that. You know, I was lucky enough to, to work for a few really great people early in my career that gave me great advice. Um, one great place that I worked was uh, the Butler Bros, which is ad agency in East Austin. And Adam and Marty had a pretty big impact and influence on the way that, that I think about, you know, work and um, the types of work that you take on and, you know, that it's not important or not that it's not important, but it's it's equally as important to to decide who you don't want to work with as it is to just take all the work that comes through the door. Um, so you know that that's one piece is really uh, you know when you're a photographer, if you go out and shoot a hundred photos and you show your client all one hundred, they're always going to pick the one you don't like. Mm. And so it's just as important to really figure out you know that edit process only only show what you're proud of, right? Curation. And yeah, the curation process is a big deal. And so when you're thinking about who you're going to work with, you know, as a business owner or, you know, sales guy or whatever, I think it's it's important to know what you stand for and what you don't stand for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that's really important. And, and the other piece of advice I got early on was from a, another photographer named Adam Voorhees, who's here in Austin. And, and I was talking to him a lot about competition and trying to get into the market, you know, and he made this comment a long time ago about how if you spend all your time, like looking to your left and right and behind you and trying to like worry about what everybody else who's competing against you is doing, you don't spend a lot of time looking forward and figuring out where you're going to go in the future. And, um, you know, and I, and I hear that a lot. It's like people are just so worried about who's going to come take their work or who's going to do this or that. And, and then you become them. And then you become you them, yeah. do what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. So we, I think in Austin, have a really cool community where there are a lot, there's a lot of collaboration. And it does. it's not purely competitive. And I've known a lot of people who have um, moved here that have worked with us and um, in my capacity as a photographer and, and now is, is uh, with our business currently. And I think people are kind of taken aback at how collaborative the city of Austin is. And I, I think especially if you're here, like lean on the collaborative nature and the fact that people want Austin to win, you know, like yeah. everybody wants to support Austin. And uh, that's one of my favorite things about living here. So, yeah. yeah. What a beautiful note to end on. Well, Jay, thank you so much for spending time with us. And I love you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you all. Whether it's a true crime investigation, a music sci-fi novel, a biography of Robin Williams, or a lively memoir, Emily Quigley is ready to share some of the Austin 360 staff's summer reading recommendations. Thanks for coming to the studio, Emily. 
Hi, it's nice to be here. Welcome, welcome. First time guest. It is. This is very exciting. I feel very official now that I'm here in the black box with you guys. <laughs> That's what we call it, the black box. <laughs> to hear about books. We're going to talk about some summer reading. You compiled a list. Uh, staffers in the Features Department uh, suggested books that they are reading this summer, books they want to read. You compiled some books that are on your nightstand. What were some of the themes that you saw as uh, staffers started sending in their recommendations? Well, I think it was really interesting to see the mix of some new books that are out, but also some old favorites. You know, it's a great time to think about that book that you always meant to read years ago but never did, or maybe the one that in college you were supposed to read and didn't quite get around to it. Maybe this is the time to do it. But also it's a really interesting balance of different types of books. I think a lot of times there's been this stereotype of summer reading being very fluffy things. Um, You know, you might picture like a, a... romance novel or some sort of sun-dappled cover or something. Nicholas Sparks something, on the Beach. Something like a like a Florida-themed crime, light, funny, yes, Carl Heisen yes. kind of thing. And I think that we need to, you know, broaden that idea. I mean, this is just a great time for you to really find something new, something interesting. Put aside your devices that we always have around because... You know, summer reading, I think the reason we got that idea was because before we all had phones and iPods and all those things, you needed a book to read in the car or on the plane or on the beach. And so maybe this is a great time to get back to that and unplug for a little bit, learn something new, see a different perspective. And so this list that we got from all of our staff members across the newsroom has a really good mix of those kinds of things. So if you're interested in history, if you're interested in um, more classic Books. Uh, we have some mysteries on there. Uh, we, we have. We had a, a sci-fi, uh, like pop culture music book from Joe Gross. I'm yes. Like, yeah, that sounds like Joe. That I was like just about to mention that one. That one has a great cover. If you see, you know, not to judge a book by its cover, but that one does have a pretty outstanding okay, cover. What is the name of this book? It is uh, Strange Stars: David Bowie, Pop Music, and the Decades Sci-Fi Exploded. Are we Ooh. sure Joe Gross didn't write this book? <laughs> uh, <laughs> he actually wishes. That's what he says. I wish I had thought of this. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, uh, there's one on, on the list that I'm really curious about that I, that I'd, I would like to read myself is uh, the Robin Williams uh, mm. biography from Dave. Uh, uh, it's called From the New York Times. That sounds really interesting, too. That does sound really interesting. And Michelle McNamara has a book out, uh, Patton Oswalt's Late Wife. Tell us about that, because yes. that's on your list, right, Emily? It is. So I did a list of um, true crime books, because this is something that I tend to go back to over and over. Um, and that was at the top of the list. This book came out early this year. Michelle McNamara had had a blog for years called True Crime Diary. And she wrote about, you know, she doesn't have a background. She's a writer. Um, and so she comes at it from that perspective, but just someone who's fascinated by true crime. And so she wrote about the Golden State Killer, who was, uh, this is a case that was in um, California in the 70s and 80s, started out thinking there were two suspects. There was the East Area Rapist in the Sacramento area, and then there was the original Night Stalker in Southern California. And eventually police tied those two together with DNA, but they did not have a suspect for years and years and years. And this became kind of an obsession of Michelle McNamara's. And she did all this sleuthing, talked to all these people, and was writing this book. And then before she could finish the book, she died. And um, her colleagues that she had been working with finished the book. They published it. It was um, really popular among fans of true crime. And then after it was published, I think maybe two months later, there was actually an arrest in the case. And then it just blew up. Yeah, It's so crazy and, to think about. And are, are they saying that, uh, that the, her work and the book directly contributed to them catching this guy? or uh, It has not been said by the officials. And that was something when they held that first press conference, which... I was watching, a lot of people I know were watching, 
And there were a lot of people that actually were a little miffed that she was not mentioned there. And I think that people who have been following the case and are fans of hers really do credit her for keeping interest up about the case, mm-hmm. not necessarily the what cracked the case, because that all was DNA, and that was all done by the law enforcement. But renewing the interest, keeping it up there, having it not be a cold case, I think she definitely should get credit for that. And I, and I think, I mean, a lot of people that I, I first heard about this book and, and this writer because she was married to Patton Oswalt, the comedian, and he, and he had been kind of also keeping interest in it after she died of, of, right, like, right. You know, of trying to get the book published and get people involved so yeah that's an amazing story you have quite a few other true crime books on your list a personal interest in yours do you want to mention a couple of the other titles well one of them is from a local author kate winkler dawson is a senior lecturer at ut and she wrote death in the air and this is about the great london smog in 1952 which i had never learned about in school but there was this huge thing that led to clean air act legislation in britain Thousands and thousands and thousands of people died in this horrible smog event. At the same time, there was a man uh, who was a serial killer at that time period. And so she ties together these two events, the serial killer and also this killer smog and the government inaction that led to it and also led to them kind of trying to cover up how many deaths there were. And so it's this really interesting mix of history and crime. You have me sitting on the edge of my seat about a historical <laughs> murder. Yes, you know, yes. It's ago. really, it's definitely a true crime story for people who may not always be into that really true crime aspect of things. I feel like there's like an entree right now into true crime uh, books because there's like a boom in true crime podcasts. Like that's that's a huge absolutely, hot genre right absolutely. I mean, honestly, I that's where I learned about some of these things is from listening to my favorite murder podcast, other podcasts like that. People will now go online and they form these communities and they do book recommendations for each other. And so that definitely all is playing together. And now all these Netflix shows, too. Yeah, and there's sort of this meta layer, too. I, I have a friend, Sarah Bunting, who from uh, Television Without Pity days and previously. She has a, a podcast called The Blotter Presents, and they, they talk about true crime TV, true crime movies, like any, anything that comes out, they'll kind of cover it as like entertainment news sort of and, and kind of go into it. She's reviewed so many the staircase and like anything that comes out like mm-hmm. she's all over it Sarah oh, I need to check that out oh cool. it's fantastic well uh, thanks for coming in Emily and we hope you have many hours of happy summer reading ahead of you thank you yeah, happy summer reading everybody go get a book Welcome to the studio, Eric Webb. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Addy. Hello, Tali. Thanks so, for having me. What has been, uh, you, a couple weeks ago, you wrote about Celebration Station for Austin 360 and some memories because you grew up in Austin mm-hmm. during the 90s. Exactly. And you went to many a birthday party. Many a birthday party, many a field trips. So really the question was, um, you know, we're always talking about how much Austin is changing. We're always thinking about, oh, do you remember that place? And people always talk about who are maybe... Uh, who were around Austin a little bit earlier were like, oh, remember like Liberty Lunch and places like this? And I was like, Armadillo well, World Headquarters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so <laughs> I was like, well, for the like 20 something, like what's that place that you're thinking of? Like whatever happened to that place? And so for me, it was Celebration Station, which was this entertainment funplex that was at <laughs> 71 and I-35. I remember going there all the time for birthday parties. I think I had some birthday parties there. <laughs> we went on field trips there. I got banned from the go-karts there. Oh. 
Early road rage. Yeah, yeah, which uh, mostly just clumsiness and a lack of ability to effectively drive a go-kart. But then it disappeared, you wrote. At some point, yeah, it disappeared. And as a child, I remember it disappearing. (laughs) But it turns out it didn't really disappear, of course. People knew it was closing. (laughs) And so it was actually only open from like 1992 to 1999. And I just did a little click, click, click into the States and Archives. And the story wrote in 1999 about closing said it was still thriving. It was still packed and busy when it closed. But it closed because they were building the airport, Austin Bergson International Airport. Uh, that was opening down the highway, down 71. And so uh, it got pushed out in fa- Celebration Station got pushed out and in favor of hotels. they build it somewhere. Um, factoid, at the old airport where Mueller is now is where The Clash filmed their Rock the Casbah music okay. video. Did Just FYI. So, okay, so Celebration Station was a chain, but like uh, many chains, it doesn't mean it doesn't have soul-filled memories for those of us who grew up with it. I remember seeing this documentary years ago about Showbiz Pizza and the real feeling center of that um, of that movie being like, look, if you were a suburban kid and you and your family couldn't afford to go to Disney World, Showbiz Pizza was your thing. Like it, it was the special place. It was where you went went to make memories. And so it sounds like that's a bit of what's going on here with Celebration Station. Yeah, and it actually ended up being sort of this nice little microcosm for the story of Austin because uh, in the story that we wrote in 1991 about the plans for the development, um, it talks about uh, you know how there's nothing there, and then the 1990 in, in the spot where they put Celebration Station, and then the report from when it closed. Uh, there's a line about how it sprung up from a barren dirt field alongside Interstate 35, <laughs> which if you've been down there now, that ain't no barren dirt mm-hmm. field. And so there's like a parking spot and a Hilton. Yeah, there's everything you many could want. things, <laughs> anything you could want. And so yeah, I I can't help but wonder now for kids who are growing up in Austin, what are these spots? So sort of Tal, you're talking about the showbiz pizza effect, and so for oh, me, it's Chuck- Celebration Station. I was gonna say Chuck E. Cheese is still uh, alive and strong. In fact, there used to be one at Ben White and South First, and they moved it down to almost all the way at Slaughter and 35 now. And I thought, you know, this was a sign that like, okay, Chuck E. Cheese is finally gonna bite the dust because it's not hip and not cool. Oh, no, 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 no. It's just larger. It's even more digitized. They've got more technology built into it. But it is still a place where you go and you have birthday parties. And it's a quick and easy way to provide entertainment to kids between a certain, you know, age. But their parents also still have fun. There's a there. really interesting, um, I want to say it's a TED Radio Hour. No, no, it's a, a Freakonomics looking at incidents of violence. Yes. <gasps> comparing like a Chuck E. Cheese to Dave and Buster's. It's Peter Pizza. Peter Piper Pizza. Okay, yeah, yeah. And um, wow. they're correlating like violent events and the cost of of things there. And so, but even just putting out that question, it kind of like immediately, I think kind of like maybe like brings up some knee jerk like assumptions about who's going there, what is, are the social dynamics, but then they break it all down and present this like interesting correlation and things that aren't correlated. Wow. Well, I had never been to Dave and Buster's until just a couple of years ago. And I mean, what did you think? I thought it was cool. I thought the concept was interesting, especially like acknowledging that adults like to play those games too. So you might as well serve them beer and food. Um, <laughs> I mean, I am just too cheap for those places though. Just like I'm too cheap for the carnival. I love, I drive by the carnival. I'm like, Ooh, that looks like fun. And then I'm like, or I could just like tear up two fifty dollar bills and flush them down the toilet. <laughs> 
Addie. Okay, I love the carnival. I actually love cheap, look like they're going to break roller coasters. Like there's a soft spot in my San Antonio heart for those places. But I can't take indoor complexes. It's like sensory overload. It's too loud, too many colors. Like it's claustrophobic. I hate it. Here's my question. So for y'all, y'all have kids. What are the places that you think your kids might in Austin that they might look back? Well, main event we've had fun at. Definitely. And we did go to Kitty Acres before it closed. Speaking of, uh, you know, Austin parks with long histories, this was up in far north Austin and it was an old school, like you could ride a little horse around a track, you could ride, it was like old attractions and it had been there for like 50 years. Ken Herman wrote uh, some awesome columns about what happened to some of the the rides when they finally sold it. So Kitty Acres, I think, was maybe the first place in Austin. There was another place actually on Barton Springs that um, Anna of Anna's Toy Depot talked about in her cold open for us on the show a couple months ago. Um, where she used to go as a kid where it was like dime night or a nickel. You could, for a nickel, ride all these rides. <laughs> oh, yeah. So this right. was, I think, where some of the RV parks are on Bar- Barton Springs. So this kind of stuff has been around for a long time. But I think we kind of hit the nail on the head that this was in, this was an era where you weren't able to fly to Disney World. I mean, you know, basically travel has opened up. It's it's less expensive to fly than it ever has been. And just disposable income has changed. And so now you can go a little bit further on the same amount of money. But before, you know, going to Barton Springs for nickel night was sort of the highlight that's what you did right right and to answer your question Eric Nika's still developing her taste the other day she requested we go to Genuine Joe's oh okay (laughs) that's like you you want a latte Uh, yeah maybe she does (laughs) Kids so, these days. I'll get back to you <laughs> on that. There were two places that I want to name check real quick that I also think fall into the Celebration Station umbrella. There's Pandemonium, which you can, there's actually a really cool essay you can I find online. I think remember that. Yes, Pandemonium actually is the one that I think I had the most fervent, like, childhood. Mm-hmm. You can never go back, like, like kind of <laughs> feelings Visceral about. memories, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's a place called Aladdin, I think it's called Aladdin's Castle, and it was I think in Barton Creek Mall, it was an arcade, <laughs> and then they replaced it with a Luby's that is not there anymore. I think we had an Aladdin's Castle in our mall. A yeah. different age demographic. Yeah, and so I have this very vivid memory of this arcade, and it's like yeah. all super foggy, Yeah, but I'm pretty sure it existed. Right? <laughs> so now I'm going to have to look and see <laughs> what That was the that. only arcade in Southwest Missouri. Was that, it was a Simon Run Mall mm-hmm. in Springfield. That makes sense yeah. then. So, I, I mean, Blazer Tag, hello. Have oh. you guys done Blazer Tag? Yes. It's, you know, it's actually been too long. A you, little bit too yeah, yeah, long yeah, yeah, for yeah. me. We got to yeah. go. Maybe we should do that as like a little podcast. Group thing outing. Because <laughs> yes. that, in addition to the actual Blazer Tag, they have a bunch of these games. So for my family, that is the perfect marriage of, well, also spending $100 in two hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we have a great time and it's air conditioned. There was also a laser tech place up by Highland Mall called Laser Quest. And I remember we went to the grand opening when I was a kid. (laughs) And I'm probably going to keep coming up with all these childhood attractions in Austin for the rest of the day. Uh, Listeners, if you've got some childhood attractions that you are super nostalgic for, as Eric is, slash you might be making them up. Like, did they actually (laughs) exist? We want to know about them. Those are interesting, too. Uh, Write us. Loveaustin at Satesin.com. And talk to us on Facebook and Twitter. Celebration Station isn't the only beloved Austin institution that has disappeared due to the inevitable march of progress. Let's take a moment to honor some of the Austin places we have loved and lost. The original Alamo Draft House on 4th and Colorado. The Alamo Ritz is fine, but we miss the way that marquee sign stood out in the warehouse district. Hoek's Death Metal Pizza. The pools of oil in your pepperoni are like the tears I'll cry when I eat my last slice. Cheapo Records. Remember when you could get more than a few dollars for selling your CD collection? 
Flipnotics. Your parking lot was terrifying, but your lattes were more than comforting. Satay, you taught so many unsophisticated Texans how to love spicy peanut sauce. Toy Joy's original location. Who doesn't love a toy store? A terrible person, that's who. Ruby's Barbecue. Yes, we have amazing next-level barbecue on almost every corner, but at what cost? Ruby's Barbecue was a victim of the Great Austin Brisket Glut. Players near the UT campus. We never ate there, but we hear some students and sports fans liked it. Students and sports fans, we are sorry for your loss. Little City. For so many years, the best and only place to grab coffee downtown. The Dobie Theater. We didn't even mind that one of the tiny screening rooms had a gigantically awkward column in the middle of it. You were an indie cinema oasis when it was cineplexes as far as the eye could see. The trailer park on South Congress. You were the first and perhaps the best food trailer park. You even had parking. And now that parking is a hotel. The original Torchy's Tacos trailer. We lost count of how many dirty tacos we ordered here. May you have rolled on to greener pastures. Snack bar. Retro global tapas. Fun while it lasted. To all these Austin places that are no more, you may be gone from Google Maps Street View, but you'll live on in our hearts. time for recommendations from us in a segment we like to call a toast where we tell you stuff you should check out Addie, why don't you get us started well thanks to netflix i filled in a gap in my pop culture knowledge over the weekend i never understood the funko pop figures oh the little, little bobblehead looking thing. i just didn't get it i'm like what the heck is this there are so many of them why do they that we were going to gamestop and i'm just like these stupid little figures i think there's funko pops of us i think i think they made <laughs> ones of me and Addie and tolly already well, now that i've seen this documentary i will know that i will have truly made it when i get a funko pop but it is uh, a documentary called making fun and it is the history of funko which i had no interest in whatsoever but we just watched the coco documentary R.I.P. Coco. <laughs> Coco. Coco the gorilla, Coco not, the gorilla. not the Mexican oh, uh, Pixar film. Sorry, Coco the gorilla, yes. Um, and so then we watched Making Fun, and I, it was really interesting to go back in time to 1998 and sort of that pre-9-11 pop culture moment when we were in transition out of the 90s and into the 2000s. And basically this group of guys who were just really into pop culture decided that they wanted to make bobbleheads, and they, they, they were kind of enchanted with the 50s and 60s when they were growing up. Hanna-Barber all of those um, sort of cartoons from their childhood. And so they started making bobbleheads and started licensing them with all of the, you know, big names and trademarks and stuff. So once they started doing that, then it evolved into this mega, I don't know, it was I, Beanie Babies we knew about. We knew there were crazy fans about Beanie Babies. I did not know there were crazy fans about Funko who come to an annual conference every year just to come and have fun with each other. And so the documentary, it's an hour and a half long. I was like, there's no way I'm going to make it all the way through this. I was crying. I was like wow. signed up, ready to buy some Funko stock by the end. The documentary goes into them opening up their first store in Everett, Washington. Basically this mecca for people to come and have nostalgia about their childhood and find community with other people who love pop culture. And it just gave me all kinds of warm, fuzzy, good feelings. So making fun. 
That's my recommendation. It's kind of like that Netflix thing, uh, Toys We Love, or what is it called? Oh, uh, yeah. The, I've been kind of on like a toy documentary kick. Yeah. Little Shoulders is the Barbie one. This um, one, Making Fun, was much better than Little Shoulders. Well, Funko has a, uh, I think it's Funko Original is their Instagram account. And, you know, they just post, you know, at conventions and things. Like, they, they have a really good Instagram. I follow that. That's cool. That's yeah. a good recommendation, I, I too. I like Funko. Yay. Uh, do you want to tell us uh, what you got this week, Emily? Sure, I have. And uh, I should say, Emily Quigley, who we had in our previous segment, is back for a toast. Hello. So my recommendation is an Austin podcast. It's called the Night Owl Podcast, and this is an Austin Ghost Stories podcast <gasps> done by a Austin filmmaker. It comes out once a month, usually the last Monday of the month. So I just listened to the most recent one yesterday. Um, they've gone to the tavern. They've gone to the clay pit. They've gone to a tattoo shop. And then this latest episode is actually the first um, in a series in a couple's home in New Braunfels. So it's the first it, time what? they've actually been... Is it me? In a, well, <laughs> I don't know if he's using pseudonyms. Have you seen the figure of a small girl running through your hallway? Yes, two of them all night. <laughs> go, to, go to sleep. I'm like, Damn it, girls! <laughs> well, as scary as parenthood is, this is slightly different. Um, what I like about this podcast is there's a good mix of, you know, the ghost stories, which are fun, but, you know, you might have different levels of skepticism or belief in those sorts of things, but there's also a lot of Austin history in there. He mm-hmm. Talks about going to the Austin History Center and researching these mm. places and looking for stories that could tie into what people say they are seeing. And so it's a nice little peek at our history as well as some fun stories. I like the Driscoll is is maybe they're saving the Driscoll for a future episode. Or oh, the Driscoll. I actually went on a walking tour once, a ghost tour, and the Driscoll, I believe, was where they said they had the ghost in the ladies' restroom that would poke her head under a stall, which was the most frightening thing I could possibly imagine. <laughs> this is terrifying me. But I was like, no, it's just Moni Myrtle. Yes. It's just me. Yes. But I love that it's local. I mean, I think that we there are probably ghost podcasts or, you know, national ghost hunters, and, you know, we watch TV shows and, and stuff about that, but to have a local show focused on these places that we go to all the time but don't even think there, about there's right a, there's a ghost tour and pub crawl that i've been meaning to do with my brother mm-hmm. that, that that's in here in town yeah i'm really excited to go back to the tavern and kind of creep along the stairs and look around so so that's fun and it's a nice mix also of not the sort of some you know we might be familiar with tv shows ghost stories where they're standing in a dark room yelling at things bring it on bro or whatever and it's mm-hmm. not like that it's mm-hmm. much more measured and mm-hmm. they talk to the people that work there so it's really interesting oh, that's, that's cool. awesome that's oh, a great idea for oh, a podcast what are you into these days Omar? well i had an amazing meal at lauro which is the new uh i guess tyson cole and uh aaron franklin former guests of the show uh, got together and we're like, let's do like a Asian fusion barbecue, you know, mashup with, with lots of meats. And it is fantastic. I was there on a Saturday during uh, World Cup stuff and it was just, the meal was amazing. I had I had pork belly. I had this rice cream dish that was awesome. I had the, uh, the brisket burger, which uh, brisket sandwich. And they actually have a happy hour from, I think, 2.30 to 5 during the week where they have this, like, Franklin barbecue brisket, you know, meat brisket uh, burger mashup that uh, I was there to try. And they're like, oh, we don't have that today, but why don't you just try the regular brisket sandwich? I'm like, oh, Let me have my Aaron Franklin brisket sandwich. Just hand it over. And it was amazing. It was so good. Everything there was good. I had a uh, some mango sake uh frozen slushy deliciousness slushies yeah Yeah, that were fantastic like everything was amazing everything like was off the plate their chicken karaji is Mm -hmm. great like it's everything's on point people that were having a good time and the nice thing about Laurel is not only do they have plenty of parking 
they have plenty of tables. You're mm-hmm. not going to be waiting a long time. So like even on a Saturday, you know, lunchtime when it was should have been super busy, like there was no wait. So the space is so beautiful too. Lots of really you know, ceiling windows and plants. And I mean, the counter you can eat at the bar, and the counter looks like 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 you're like you're going to get some uh, sushi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it looks very and, spacious. And price wise, was it affordable? Uh, it was what you'd pay for like a good a good dinner in Austin. Mm-hmm. You know, but but it, I mean, but we're also ordering like four or five dishes. So mm-hmm. like if you just eat, if you just want. The brisket sandwich you can get out of there for like under twenty dollars. Certainly less than Uchi. For sure. Oh yeah, it's not that kind it of. Seems food. like the kind of cuisine that'd be really good for summer too. There's something about that that just feels appealing for this time of year. I mean, the dishes are are good size, but not so. But there's also some tapas size things that you can share. I mean, yeah, it's very sure. everything's very shareable. They give you some chopsticks and some bowls and some sharing plates and just order like three or four things and share it with with some friends. And did they have the World Cup on? Yes, they did, and it was well, fantastic. There's several more weeks left of that, so. Uh-huh. And uh, so, I and I understand that um, Matthew Odom will be reviewing Laurel very soon, so probably in the next yes, month. Yes, next month we'll be looking for that. Fantastic! I know it's going to be a good review. <laughs> really delicious. <laughs> well, thanks everybody for your shares. This is great. That's our show. She's Addie. He's Omar. I'm Tali. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter at loveaustin360. If you liked what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. It helps other people discover the show. Be sure to come back next week when we have a very special themed episode to share with you. We can't tell you what it is just yet, but here's a hint. I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, is produced by Alyssa Vidales. The show is made with support from Features Editor Sharon Chapman and the entire Austin 360 staff. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com. You can find more about the show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave a voicemail at 512-445-3672. This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Lexus of Austin. We couldn't do this show without you, dear listener, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your portable spray misters. Until next time, we'll see you under the 4th of July fireworks. Mm-hmm.